G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. Good to be chatting with you again on the podcast as always. Good to be with you again, Rowan. Now, we've called today's episode Undoing the Affliction of Addiction. So, what are we going to be talking about today? Well, we're talking about a range of addictions that can relate to drug and alcohol abuse that we'd often think of, but they're also behavioural addictions, for example, gambling addictions. And when engaged in excessively, then these behaviours can have very negative consequences, hence the affliction aspect of it. And as far as the undoing, well, many people can successfully quit addictions, which is very encouraging, but also even when people don't fully quit There's a lot that people can do to curb addictive behaviours and often curbing addictive behaviours, gradually undoing them step by step, for many people will be a path on the way to ultimately quitting and certainly undoing the negative effects of the addiction. So today we'll be speaking about a couple of different aspects of addictions. So we'll be having a bit of a broad chat about the nature of addictions in themselves, then get into some of the specific addictions and their problems in the community. And, and I suppose one thing I'm interested in is whether there's a link between some of the addictions. And then we'll get into some of the treatment and how to get over some of these addictive behaviours. But I suppose just to start, Dad... As a young fella living in Australia, I'll put my hand up and say, you know, of a Saturday, I'll have a punt on the horses, quite enjoy a beer down at the pub with my mates. But at what point do we call something an addiction? Okay, so when does it become really excessive and problematic? Well, we partly define that by when people spend a lot more time on the activity than they meant to spend, that there's a feeling of compulsion, they're compulsively seeking it out, despite knowing that there are very negative consequences with, for example, money lost from a gambling addiction or health problems from a drug or alcohol addiction. And then also there are other characteristics where people tend to develop a tolerance for the particular drug or behaviour, so they need to engage in it more to have the same effect, or they experience withdrawal without it, meaning can feel very irritable or anxious or uncomfortable, having a craving to engage in that behaviour or take that drug again. And by definition, it tends to have some negative impact on areas of our life, such as health, work and relationships. Well, I remember one thing that you told me once about addictions in that there can be a bit of a clue in the name in terms of addiction, the word diction obviously like to speak sort of thing, but addictions can relate to what we tell ourselves. So it can almost be like a narrative of, you know, when I go home or when I go to bed, I'm going to have a pint of beer next to me or I'm going to have a cigarette at this point of the day sort of thing. So I wonder if part of an addiction is almost some of the reliance on whether it be a substance whether some of that creeping into our self-talk relates to the point of an addiction. Yes, very much I think it is to do with our self-talk. So we would tell ourselves, like our addiction or self-talk will be, I need this, I have to do this, I must do this, I can't help but do this. And so it's as though we've been bitten by some kind of bug that makes us do things a certain way or there's been a kind of spell that's cast on us and we can't do anything else. Now, if we have that kind of self-talk of thinking we need something, then the notion of need is different from want or prefer. If we tell ourselves, I have to do this or I have to have this now, well, the word need relates to old words to do with life and survival, you know, death, life and survival. So it kind of says, I need this 
So saying to yourself, I need this, means I need it for my survival or happiness rather than a preference. And if we get into that kind of self-talk of thinking that we need something at that point in time, it's going to be very, very hard to resist it. As opposed to, I want it, I prefer it, I might even have a craving for it, but I don't have to have it. I can do without it. There's an American psychologist called uh, Jim Quick who's come up on the podcast before and he has a great quote which is, our brain is like a supercomputer and our self-talk is the software that it chooses to run. And so in this case, I wonder if someone with an addiction, it's almost like the software that their computer is running is being overly influenced by the particular addiction that someone might have. Yes, so we could be programming ourselves in certain ways, almost self-hypnotising ourselves by our language and by the way we look at things, by the way we think about things, to tell ourselves that we have to act in a certain way. And that's to do with also notions of self-efficacy. When people overcome any problem, like curbing or quitting addictions, it's usually from building one's self-efficacy, meaning I can be effective in resisting this urge. I can do that. I can get past this and I can manage okay, even if it's very, very difficult at the time. Well, it seems to me that addictions, like other topics of the podcast that we've been speaking about recently in terms of OCD or dissociation, seems that there might be a, a layering aspect to addiction. So it may not necessarily be that someone's primary psychological issue is the addiction in itself. It may be that that's more of a response to something in the first place. So is it the case then with addictions that, and we'll get into the treatment of it later on, but is it something that you look to treat, I suppose, the source of the addiction before the behaviours or is it really worth looking to curb those behaviours in any circumstances? Okay, well, one of the things that relates to is people are more likely to have an addiction if they have some other mental health problem. So it is really worth exploring whether there is another mental health problem such as depression and people might be trying to, for example, drown their sorrows, or there might be anxiety where people might be self-medicating. So there's a high incidence, for example, in alcohol use disorders if people have an obsessive-compulsive disorder. So trying to reduce the anxiety through the alcohol-like medication. And so also with trauma, we know that people are four times more likely to have a substance use disorder if they have PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder, for example. So I think... Just as you suggest, it's worthwhile looking at are there some other factors or is there some other ongoing inner distress that the person is trying to alleviate through their addiction? Well, it's something that's quite relevant in the moment in the sense that I was looking at something the other day and 70% of Australians were drinking more than usual since the beginning of the COVID-19 outbreak. So that seems to suggest that there is potentially a link there between whether it be some sort of traumatic feelings and alcohol use in this sort of case. So I suppose if we look at that term, like self-medication is something that you hear quite often. I assume from what you've said there that many of these addictions potentially start as self-medicating behaviour and then potentially become more entrenched and then form an addiction later on. So I suppose in that case, is it ever okay to self-medicate? Well, I suppose it boils down to looking at the advantages and disadvantages of any kind of behaviour. And many people might relate to the idea that, for example, using alcohol can be relaxing to some degree. 
It's just that if that advantage becomes outweighed by it becoming an entrenched kind of problem, so people are using it more than they intended to, it's got more cost and more time spent on it, it's interfering with their other activities, they're more uninhibited, so their irritability or anger is coming out more at home, for example, and leading to more arguments or distress. It's a weighing up of the advantages or disadvantages. So by definition, something's an addiction... An affliction of addiction, if you like, if the negative consequences are outweighing any benefits that the person might have. Well, I find it interesting to be talking about addictions in this context because I suppose if you were to take maybe the Nancy Reagan view of, say, drugs, for example, it's potentially seen to be a little bit more black and white in terms of if you just choose not to engage in that behaviour in the first place, well, then maybe you won't end up addicted. But It seems to me from what you've described there that maybe it's a little bit more complicated than that. I think it is, and it's partly more complicated for societal reasons. So take alcohol, for example. I remember how Hugh McKay identified that there were four different reasons why we might tend to use alcohol. It's a social lubricant. Well, many of us could relate to that, having alcohol in social situations. We tend to use it to celebrate It's almost a universal experience if people are celebrating a major birthday or something like that. In our culture, there will often be alcohol involved. But we also can use it to reduce stress. People might describe it as having a relaxing effect. And also, as Hugh McKay described, it could be a solace for sorrow. So people are more likely to abuse alcohol with depression, for example. But as he mentioned, these kind of situations where we tend to emphasise alcohol, well, it supports his point that In short, we worship the stuff. So if there's such a strong community endorsement, if you like, of using alcohol, for example, then there's going to be more risk that people are going to develop addictions or use it more excessively, at least, when they're more stressful times, such as we've had over recent months. Well, I think that notion of how the environment relates to addictions is really interesting. And I remember almost the first thing that I ever heard about addictions that really kind of blew my mind on this subject was it was a series of experiments called the Rat Park Experiments, which explored this link between the environment and addictions. And it was done by Dr. Bruce Alexander was his name. And in the early 1980s, he realised that all of the experiments that had been done on animals that I suppose dictated a lot of the drug policy and that sort of stuff were essentially done on depressed animals. They were kept in metal cages that were too small for them and they weren't able to socialise, all that sort of thing. And so he wondered what would happen if you gave these rats, in this case, an enriched environment and whether the results would be the same. So he gave all these rats, it was like a 200 square foot play area. They were able to eat whatever they want. They had room to kind of play and mate and all this sort of stuff. And he installed two water drippers. And so one of the water drippers was laced with morphine and the other was just regular water. And he found that all of the animals that they'd been experimenting on in their kind of small cages had just been going for the morphine water and basically just smashing it to the point where they get obviously addicted and essentially die. But in that rat park where they had an enriched environment, essentially he found he wasn't able to get the rats to hook themselves on the morphine. They were always going for the clean water. 
And even after, he gave them just morphine for two months, so they were exhibiting signs of withdrawal at that stage. They still went back to the clean water once they were given that option, and it was only when he included an opiate blocker in the morphine water that the rats would go back to that water. And so essentially, to me, what that suggests is it's almost like the enrichment of the environment that the rats were presented with in the sense that because they weren't so sort of depressed all the time, they didn't have the need to chemically enhance their kind of state of being because it was so good anyway. So to me, that suggests that there's something in the nature of addictions which leads you to think that there's something in the environment of the person afflicted with that addiction that is causing them to stay addicted, that is stopping them from being able to kick the habit, I suppose. That's fascinating, that study, and I was very surprised to hear that when you mentioned that to me recently, and it does really underscore the importance of people being able to have an enriched environment, which I think leads naturally to neuroplasticity. We've talked about this before, when people are engaged in an activity that gives some sense of pleasure or achievement, that can lead to the development of new neurons, just as physical exercise can. So... I was struck by the fact that I would have really predicted that the morphine would have had the greater impact. And that might show that we have a general cultural notion that substances could be like so powerful and the biological impact so powerful that that's what will drive the behaviour. And I think that's one example of how we can have an exaggerated view of the impact of biology. But we see it was their environment, so it was, the, it was the social setting as much as anything else that led people to be able to have enough in their experience, or that led the animals to have enough in their experience that would keep them satisfied. They didn't need some artificial boost to their sense of pleasure. Well, it also reminds me of hearing about the veterans in Vietnam, and potentially you could speak a little bit more to this with your experience, but I remember hearing one time that So I believe about two-fifths of, say, the American GIs in Vietnam tried drugs, and I think heroin seemed to be the sort of drug of choice, partly because it was most available over there. And of that group, about half of them ended up becoming addicted to drugs while they were over in Vietnam. But then when they got back, of that group that were addicted, which was about one in five of the American soldiers who went over to Vietnam, two-thirds of them essentially came back to America and were just able to kick the habit on the spot just like that, just gave up, didn't try them again. And it was only 7% of those who were addicted stayed addicted to the point, I think it was eight to ten months later. So... That really suggested as well that there was a real link between the traumatic environment and the drug use of those soldiers. Again, that's such a remarkable finding because I believe the drugs they were referring to were narcotics. And I would tend to think of those drugs as having a very powerful impact and for many people very difficult to quit when they do have an addiction. But as you're describing, these were addicted soldiers and yet when they got back to a more, dare I say, normal environment and hopefully more enriched environment, the common thing that they did was quit. That's a very interesting finding, and again, it shows that there are circumstances that could be much more powerful than the biological impact of withdrawal. One question I have there is, it's something that you hear a little bit, is that people who say something like, I have an addictive personality. So is it the case that potentially some people, potentially some of these vets, 
had an, more of an addictive personality and that meant that they were more likely to stay addicted longer term or is that addictive personality notion, is that maybe a bit of a cop-out? Well, one of the main things is when people have looked for a general type of addictive personality, there's not one particular pattern that stood out. So I think that in a clinical setting, people tend not to use that term so much. But there are personality factors that will contribute a few different types of personality factors. And one example we can imagine is if people are more into risk-taking, maybe sensation-seeking, risk-taking, and especially if people have a history of conduct problems or crossing the line in some ways, then people are going to be more at risk of being addicted, especially to illicit drugs. Also, if people are unable to self-regulate or have difficulty tolerating distress in other ways, then that's likely to impact. But also, if people are somewhat disconnected, socially withdrawn, they can be more at risk that way. I suppose like those rats that were more socially disconnected or separated from others. And then also another example is obsessive compulsive disorder. People are several times more likely to abuse alcohol, for example, with that. So that, again, might relate to the tendency to self-medicate for anxiety. So when people do have anxiety-related conditions, there'll be an extra risk of developing addiction, say, to alcohol. And why is it that you tend to see more young people who have addictions? Because like, I assume it's not necessarily as black and white in terms of addictions just so unhealthy for us that a lot of the older people die, which skews the ratios. What is it in whether it be young people's worldview or whether they're not fully biologically formed, but why is it that young people seem to suffer addictions more than older people? Well, I imagine part of it will be the cultural factors. Again, there'll be a strong influence of one's peer group. And as people are entering teenage years, there's that notion of rites of passage, doing things that adults tend to do, of which taking alcohol or drugs might be one element of that. I think also there could be the element of children or teenagers not having their frontal lobes fully formed. So in terms of disinhibiting impulses or more likely to act impulsively in some ways. And I think as people enter early adult life and start to reflect more on consequences and have been more used to independence and realising that what choices that we each make will ultimately affect us the most and so we're responsible for our choices, as people reflect on those choices, people are going to be more inclined to recognise the negative consequences of alcohol and drug addiction. So I think then people can become more motivated when they reflect on patterns of behaviour over a period of time to think, well, look, it's not worth it. The disadvantages are really starting to outweigh the advantages I need to at least cut back. Well, I think it's really interesting that notion that you spoke about earlier with alcohol being such a big part of Australian society. Like, I remember back to uni days, it was almost like there was that many organised social events that everyone had a bit of a collective alcohol addiction at times. So like it's something that we so see celebrated in Australian society. And even when I lived over in England, it was exactly the same. Like Everyone loves a drink and all this sort of stuff. So particularly with alcohol, there can be a bit of a blurring of the lines between, say, addiction and excessive use. So I suppose in, say, like a clinical setting, what are some common things that come up when someone's at the point of seeking help for an addiction? Okay, and so whether it's alcohol or gambling or some other addiction, one of the main things is people will be 
troubled by, for example, the amount of time they spend on the activity. It's disruptive to their lives and taking up more time than they want to because also there's a feeling of compulsion in seeking it out. So people have a craving or an urge. They find it so hard to resist for the alcohol or gambling. And also it tends to be something that leads to problems in other areas of life. It interferes with the time people are spending in their work, for example, or it affects their physical health or it's leading to more arguments at home, either because the alcohol leading to disinhibition and irritability and more arguments at home, or there might be arguments about spending money on gambling, which has led to real distress in the family. And so there's also an element of people developing tolerance for it. So with an addiction, a behavioural or a substance use addiction, then people will be finding that they need to use more of it, if you like, to have a similar kind of effect and people experiencing a degree of withdrawal without it, so feeling more irritated or frustrated or anxious if they're not engaging in the activity. Is it possible then to be addicted, I suppose, without necessarily having the negative consequences? Because like one thing that particularly you hear with alcohol is someone being, for example, a functional alcoholic. I can think of, I believe Rod Butters was his name, the St Kilda president. Apparently he was drunk off his head for kind of years, running the club sort of thing, and no one even really fully knew until it came out much later. So is it possible to have an addiction but almost be so fully functional in your life that it doesn't necessarily stand in the way? Well, an addiction by definition means that there are negative consequences, but I think sometimes what can happen as well is a person can have built up such a tolerance to their substance use, for example, that they can still attend work for, say, 40 or more hours a week. They can broadly perform the roles that they would be expected to perform. But even in those situations, there will often be difficulties that the person might tend to deny and minimise themselves. It might be that they have some physical health problems or risks that come out maybe later on if they develop a more significant illness. Or it might be more that people within their family can recognise some of the difficulties more than they do, such as their irritability if they don't have that substance available, for example, or if they don't have access to gambling. So I think sometimes there might be more subtle signs, especially to people outside the family, but by definition, when we talk about an addiction, it means that it is interfering with people's work or relationships, and sometimes that might not be so visible to the wider public, but it will tend to have its negative consequences in the home. Is it then something that you see where people will almost use their addiction as an excuse for their behaviour? So, like, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong here, but like one thing that I've always wondered a little bit about sex addiction, that it only sort of seems to be people who kind of get caught out a little bit in their relationship that, you know, kind of after the fact they sort of say, oh, you know, like I'm, I'm such a victim, I've got this sex addiction. Is it something that you see, say, like in the general public or is that something that you more do see with like, say, celebrities? Yeah, look, I, I think there are some times where people can look to use it as an excuse. Because if someone has engaged in problematic behaviour, say they might have been caught out by the Me Too movement, for example, people might have come forward and said that they were abused by someone. If they then said that they had a sex addiction, I think that would be a cop-out. Because it's like saying, oh, I can't help it. Whereas people have a choice whether to act on an urge or not to act on an urge. And some urges are for criminal behaviour. So I don't think that should be an excuse. But where sex addiction comes up more in a clinical setting is, for example, addiction to pornography. 
And then I think it can be a significant thing because often people bring that up with a real sense of guilt and shame and clearly feel embarrassed about it. But where people are spending more time, for example, accessing pornography than they would have intended to, they might be spending an hour a day and that's disruptive and they feel bad about it. And one of the things about, say, a pornography addiction that can be interesting about understanding addictions more is sometimes it's joyless. Sometimes people talk about accessing the pornographic material. It doesn't fit in with their values or whatever, and they don't even feel that much pleasure or joy. And that's partly because the behaviour is likely motivated by dopamine. So dopamine is a neurotransmitter that leads us to be motivated to follow through with a particular type of activity. Whereas the pleasure tends to come from the opiates, such as endorphins. And so that's the internal pleasure kind of experience. Often they might go together and the dopamine will tend to be released if we do experience sudden pleasure in a particular situation and pornography is designed to, if you like, elicit some of that reaction of excitement. And so there might be a dopamine release, but that can lead people to more compulsively seek out some kind of material even though it doesn't really give them much joy. So that's one example of how dopamine can influence addictions. It doesn't necessarily always go with pleasure. Well, it's interesting looking at that link between dopamine and addictions because like, I must admit that I actually thought that dopamine did have something to do with pleasure. But I think it's really interesting to look at something like a gambling addiction, for example. And like people can get addicted to gambling and it's not as if they even have to have that big win. Like They can put on multiple losing bets and still get addicted. Yes, that's the thing with dopamine. It's about the anticipation of a reward. And so if people anticipate a reward and, say, develop a fantasy or they're over-optimistic that a win's about to come, you know, I might have lost $200, but I'll be able to win that back, and they keep on going, anticipating the reward, the dopamine is keeping them going even though they might not get the win. And that's one thing that can be so undermining about that biology. Well, I heard one time, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but apparently it's only something like something only needs to happen one in seven times before we find a pattern in it. So something can be essentially kind of random, but it's almost like our brains pick up a pattern in it. And I wonder if like gambling is almost a little bit like that in terms of you may only need to win one in seven times before it's almost like your brain picks out the pattern of of winning through the losses. Yes, and that might be an average, but I also suspect that those who gamble and get caught up in it uh, may be over-invested in an image of winning or the importance of winning or overconfident that they'll be able to catch up on their debts. And so it'll be that kind of image that drives people. And so what motivates someone to be addicted to something in particular? Like, as you were describing that there, you talk about like the image of winning sort of thing. Is it going to be a particular type of person that's more attracted to, say, gambling over alcohol, over drugs? Or is it likely that when the conditions are met for someone to have an addiction in terms of maybe having that trauma background, is it, I suppose, just the luck of the draw, really, what people come across? Look, there might be some individual differences why people develop one addiction rather than another, but I think partly it is going to be to do with opportunity and exposure too. It'll be partly social pressure, one's peers, what they might engage in, or when someone does have a negative emotional state and they're looking to, in a sense, self-medicate for it. Is it that they were in a situation where particularly 
drugs or alcohol were more or less available, like the Vietnam veterans that you mentioned, presumably that's a situation where there was more availability of narcotics and other people using it, even though when people were back in their own homes, upon return they didn't seek out narcotics so much, they overcame their addiction. So I think partly opportunity, but there will be different maybe individual factors in in why people might anticipate a reward in one situation rather than another. And so what can someone do if they find themselves addicted to something? Well, look, when it boils down to it, I think the main thing is the person being aware of the negative consequences because that's what people can tend to minimise or deny. So once someone has reached a point of thinking, hey, look, I do have a problem, I do have something I need to do about this, people have already made some progress with the difficulty. And the two main things that make an influence in how people go with making change are how important they think it is to make the change and how confident they are in making the change. And so the sense of importance comes up when the person might have been going along with an addiction. It might be a particular situation that happens or it might gradually dawn on the person, hey, I have a problem here. It's getting past that minimisation and denial. And in reflecting on that, how important it is to the person, then the question becomes, what can I do about this? And then that's the next factor, their confidence. What the person is confident that they can do to make a difference. And a whole lot of therapy is about how people can develop further confidence and how they can channel their efforts to more likely get return for effort. Well, that issue of confidence is an interesting one when you're looking at the different models of therapy for addictions. And we alluded to it earlier, but something that I suppose you kind of see in like movies and all this sort of stuff is someone will say, you know, I'm three years sober or I'm two years sober. And Is it the case that I suppose you have to be confident to fully give up something forever or can you just almost be confident to not depend on it as much? Because I suppose if we look at like the Hollywood version of people who've got over addictions, they quite often talk about, you know, I'm two years sober or I'm three years sober, but potentially I imagine that could be almost more daunting for someone who's in that situation to have to think that they almost completely black and white have to get rid of it forever as opposed to more thinking of ways that they can more healthily manage with say the urges. Yes I think it's important not to get stuck in a black and white approach and this brings up some of the difference between an AA or Alcoholics Anonymous model and what's called a relapse prevention model. Now one of the downsides of an AA model where people are saying you know once an alcoholic always an alcoholic if you have just a sip of alcohol then you might completely go backwards then the problem with that is that people can feel they've gone completely backwards to the start if they have one lapse or one slip up. And that's where there's another approach called the relapse prevention approach, which is recognising that, well, maybe 90% of people who are successful at quitting alcohol, for example, or really curbing the addiction, will have had lapses along the way. So the idea of a relapse prevention model is that people can get more confident of building on the changes that they've made. You could call it more of a growth mindset, if you like. If the person's gone for three months and then had a slip, and then gone for six months and then had a slip, or they've developed more ways of dealing with urges and getting through them, then that can give people a more gradual building of confidence rather than an all-or-nothing situation where they just have to be so on top of it that they never have a single lapse. That can put too much pressure on, and it leads to what we call the abstinence violation effect, where the person thinks, hey, I was meant to be abstinent, 
I've violated that. I've really crossed the line. Now I'm back to the start. And then people are more at risk of giving up. Well, I suppose cigarettes are an example where you quite often hear people quitting cigarettes. They'll sort of say, oh, you know, the first time I quit for two weeks and then the second time it was two months and then I was able to quit forever after that. So I wonder if that's an example of where people almost build up that level of kind of quitting. So what exactly is involved in the relapse prevention model? Well, the core of the relapse prevention model is urge surfing. So that notion of anything that helps people ride out those urges again and again and again so they get more confidence of managing with that. But in order to look at that, it takes into account the stage that people are at in making a change in their behaviour because you actually have to be pretty motivated, as you can imagine, to look to ride out those urges when that can be very difficult to resist. And so the stages that that model looks at, first of all, the pre-contemplation stage, recognising before people are really acknowledging that there's a problem and that's where they might benefit with getting information about the problem and how it might be impacting on them. Then there's a contemplation stage where the person thinks, hey, look, maybe there is something I should do about this problem. Maybe it is a problem. And that's where some kind of encouragement or support to take a next step might make a difference. Then the preparation stage is where someone is working up towards some kind of action. For example, they might look up some self-help material or they might book in to see a psychologist. They're taking some kind of step But then the key happens at the action stage, and I'll describe some of the techniques in more detail later on. But the action stage basically means the rubber hits the road. The person's doing things, using a range of strategies to help ride out their urges again and again and again so they become lesser. But then even once someone's taken that action, just say if they've quit cigarettes for a couple of weeks, well, big deal, they can go right back on that but it's maintaining the changes for at least that four-month period to have any confidence that this is a lasting change. A whole lot of a relapse prevention model is about how can people not just get off a drug, but stay off a drug, for example. But then part of the stages of change is maybe a lapse, because many people who succeed will have lapses on the way. I'd say 90% would. And so the idea is a lapse is normal, but a lapse is not a relapse. The thing is really looking back when someone's had a lapse and looking at what contributed to that. What can I learn from that? That's what I call learning to use lapses as a lever. And then hopefully responding to the lapse, it's not just giving up with that abstinence violation effect. It's then redoubling one's efforts at the action and maintenance stage. And so practically, what can people do? Are there any sort of practical tools or strategies that people can use? Well, I think one of the main things is monitoring. Like just say with quitting cigarette smoking, if people are counting up the number of cigarettes that they have a day and writing that down or counting up the number of standard drinks carefully and writing that down, preferably right at the time that they've just consumed a drink. Now, what that means is there's an incentive the person will have to write zero for that day. And then you start to get a dopamine boost anticipation of future reward if you have days where you write down zero 
So monitoring, I think, is really important. Another thing is what we call stimulus control. Not have so much exposure to the problem. So not buying cigarettes or having them around. It might be with alcohol, not having alcohol in the house. It might be not driving past a casino on the way home, taking a different route so you're not so tempted or not driving past a bottle shop. So we can influence our exposure to the problem. But ultimately, what I see when people go best is that they're really clear on their reasons for change. They've really thought about what are the advantages of quitting. Having thought of the advantages of keeping on going, like in terms of trying to self-medicate for distress or the social lubrication, if people think, well, okay, they're the advantages, but what are some of the disadvantages of continuing on, for example, with this alcohol problem? And then developing a mantra. In other words, a self-statement that people can use, such as, hold on, or let time pass, or I can do this. But just some kind of form of getting by, getting through it, I'm okay, something like that to deal with an urge. But again, that strategy of some self-talk is really to recognise that the urge can be there, it can be difficult to resist, but recognising the intensity can build up, it'll tend to level off, and then come down and doing that again and again and again. And it's when the person develops more confidence of that happening that that's when change will tend to occur. And so it's something that we sort of hear with, like, say, celebrities all the time. But, like, when would someone go to a rehab facility? Well, I think that's when the problem is so entrenched that the person's going to find it difficult to manage in another way. And by going to a residential setting somewhere where they're not going to be exposed to alcohol and where they're going to be meeting with other people who are also going to talk about their reasons for having used, for example, drugs to deal with distress, to deal with interpersonal conflict. It might be to do with a negative self-image or it might be some past trauma that they've got caught up with. And the idea of being in a setting where the person can reflect deeply and honestly about what kind of things might have contributed to their problems in the past and how much commitment they might need to make to change it. Being amongst other people who are very committed, if you like, they've they've set aside months at a time perhaps to go to a residential facility to make that their number one priority in life at that time. That is a real awareness of the impact that it's having on a person. So that's action in itself to remove oneself from one's usual settings. And in that situation, I can remember talking with a young fellow who'd been in rehab for many months at a place in Geelong called Foundation 61. And he said that what he'd learned in the past is when he'd tried to deal with problems, he'd looked to take some action, for example, by moving to a different town, changing where he lived, changing his friendship group. But he recognised he kept on developing the same kinds of friends. He kept on lapsing to the same kind of difficulty until he realised that he needed to make the changes in himself. And then he described in this rehab program that he had to remind himself every day to be desperate enough to be committed to keep on taking that action to making the change. And I think that when people are in a rehab program... What they get a sense of and what the leaders get a sense of is when people are really committed. They've got down to that stage of really being honest with themselves about their past behaviour, the harm to others and themselves. And they're so committed to make a change 
that their honesty and their vulnerability comes through further and they will tend to mix with others who are similarly motivated and that's where that social setting can lead to the encouragement for people to deal with things together as well as looking at the ways of dealing with conflict, the stress management strategies. They've got months to focus on those coping skills but also an environment where people can be honest with themselves about what's contributed to their addiction and what they need to get out of it. Well, I remember on Destination Happiness when you went and spoke to the people at Foundation 61 and and one of them had this great analogy and it was like, and obviously it sort of resonates with me a little bit being a bit of a sporting analogy, but he was sort of saying that doing everything post-addiction, it was like having to learn to kick with your left foot and it was like you're doing everything with the opposite hand was sort of the notion that, that he was getting across. And so that's where I wonder to the degree of which something like a rehab facility can be so good in terms of offering that just broad support across the board, whether it's other people around you or whether it's the more professional people there who kind of maybe have the tools to help you through that. Maybe a facility like that is called for when someone's really in that stage of where it's, it's sort of all encompassing the addiction. Yes, especially when people look back and they see that their previous efforts have failed. And they've put in what effort they can, they've looked to draw on what supports that they can, and they realise that they need more. And that's where, when people take that decision to go into a rehab facility, to go into a residential program, then commonly it's really taking a, a massive step in an uncomfortable direction, but with honesty and where the person can practice on a daily basis doing what does not come naturally. Yeah, like that fellow saying, it'll be the comfortable right foot. You tend to lapse back to that every time, but to be able to keep on going day after day and month after month, for some people that provides that extra structure of support to make the change. And how can family members and friends best support someone with an addiction? And I particularly think of that term enabling. Like I think if someone, for example, had like an ice addiction, for example, it could be very tough to confront them about that. And I could think of, for example, say a mother with her son, there could be many situations where it would be so overwhelming to have to deal with that all at once. So is it ever okay to, I suppose, enable someone with a view to address the addiction further on? Look, I think the main thing is being aware of the stage that the person is at. Like there are going to be some times where there's not so much that the person can do like their partner might be at a pre-contemplation stage. Well, then I suppose then the person has the choice to either maybe look to let there be some information around about a problem, to look to at least give a, a hint in a certain kind of direction or otherwise whether the person is so bothered that they decide to take a stand. If they think, look, if I don't take a stand on this, then I'm implicitly going along with it. Then I might be unwittingly enabling it. No, I have to do something. And that's the same with, say, domestic violence. Sometimes people have to make the decision to separate from their partner for for a period of months for the person to be serious enough to do something about it. Now, there could be another way that someone, in a sense, draws a line in the sand, but just conveying, this is not okay to continue. This is harmful to me and our relationship with what's happening. So sometimes that's the way that the person shifts the person with an addiction shifts from a pre-contemplation to a contemplation stage because their partner has given them some ultimatum. Or it might be that the doctor has told them that they do have signs of an illness that's affected by alcohol. 
Now, if it's a contemplation stage, that's when a family member can be encouraging. Like, say, supportive and encouraging, noticing hints of change and saying something approving about that. Not getting caught up in nagging, but by the same token, taking the opportunity of saying how appreciative you are that the person notices that there's a problem that way. If the person's at a preparation stage, then very much it could be supporting and encouraging them in whatever way. Sometimes giving a little bit of challenging feedback when you think that the person might be ready if they're starting to make excuses for themselves. But then a real difference at the action stage, I've found if partners come into a session, for example, with their psychologist, that can make a big difference as well because then the partner can have permission you know, with, say, the client with an addiction, they might give their partner permission to actually take some steps or remind them of something or encourage them in some way. But to pull them up to some degree, the person might agree with that, even if it's agreeing to the partner coming in to sessions with them. Then I think at the maintenance stage, again, ongoing encouragement and support. And if the family member thinks that they see signs of a slip in some way, or the risk of a slip, then maybe pointing that out in some fashion. And then in terms of a lapse, I think the thing for a partner is naturally it would be very discouraging if your partner's, say, done very well with alcohol and then had a major lapse kind of thing. I think part of it is recognising that that doesn't have to be going right back to ground zero, as disappointing as that might be, looking to support the person in reflecting on what might have contributed to that lapse, recognising other factors that might have been more difficult, not making excuses for the person, but recognising those things and then ongoing offering encouragement. But it is very difficult because family members have to draw that fine line between challenge and encouragement. And I think part of it is not expecting oneself to get it right all the time. But I think some balance of each, some balance of challenge and confrontation but then lots of support and encouragement, especially if you see the person doing the right thing or going in the right direction. Really encourage that. That peer support and family support makes a huge difference. Well, it's that uh, the old adage, which uh, I believe it was Ross Lyon, the former Fremantle and St Kilda AFL coach, and, and he had this notion for particularly young players at the club, but you fundamentally support and challenge. And I think to me, that almost relates a little bit to that there. You want to fundamentally support someone. You want to be on their side with everything. You want to give them the sense that you're in their corner, but you certainly don't want to enable them to continue the behaviour. Absolutely. And so hopefully one thing that helps people as well as we'll have some resources on this podcast episode. And so there'll be more detail that people can look up in terms of the relapse prevention model and other things. And so I think one of the things is, Be a bit compassionate towards yourself and be a bit compassionate towards the person suffering from a problem and also vice versa. If you have an addiction, be a bit thoughtful and compassionate to the impact on others because it does make a huge difference if someone starts to curb an addiction. It gives encouragement much more to the person themselves. It gives encouragement to the whole wider family. 
And those resources that you mentioned there will be available at www.chrismackey.com.au slash podcast. And we'll have the episode page available today as well. So please feel free to check that out. And we've also got the email address at podcast at chrismackey.com.au. We love getting feedback off everyone. And thank you to the couple of people who have sent through some feedback and questions so far. So dad, thanks for chatting with me today. And yeah, I'm looking forward to the next episode. I look forward to it too, Rowan.